Trends in Climate Change Litigation, Building for the Future. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. Today, we are thrilled to welcome onto our podcast, Joanna Sett. Joanna is an Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her main areas of expertise are climate litigation and global environmental governance. Since 2020, Joanna has led the Grantham Research Institute's Climate Change Laws of the World project, the most comprehensive global resource on climate policy, legislation and litigation. So Joanna is perfectly placed to discuss today's podcast, Trends in Climate Change Litigation, Building for the Future. Good morning, Joanna. We thought it might be good to start by looking at how you define climate litigation. Good morning. Well, that's already a complicated question because there is a very rich academic discussion and a lot of debate about how to define climate litigation. Basically, you can think of a narrow or a broad definition. What we tend to do is to adopt a narrow approach to defining climate litigation. And what we consider, therefore, as climate litigation is the body of cases that are brought before judicial and quasi-judicial bodies that involve material issues of climate change, science, policy or law. And a last point to make about that definition is that it includes both climate-aligned and climate non-aligned litigation. This is the definition that we use in the data collection. So how we consider what cases to include in our databases of climate litigation, which we at the Grantham maintain together with the Sabin Center, and also the definition that we use to do our following analysis. You monitor global climate litigation and the trend appears to have been that it's been growing year on year. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We started monitoring and publishing these reports in 2015. And if you look at the graphs, the bars just go up every year. So two observations there. One is that the overwhelmingly majority of cases identified so far comes from the global north. And this continues to grow. But we see cases increasing everywhere around the world, including in the global south. So the US is still the country with the majority of litigation. But we see now cases being brought in Latin America, in the Caribbean, Asia Pacific and in Africa, as well, of course, as in Europe and Australia, which are the global north countries with the second and third largest number of cases. Do you expect the growth to continue in this way? I would say hopefully not, because we can get to that. But I don't think that litigation is the way to really address the climate crisis. So ideally, I would like to see less litigation and more action, less need for litigation, less confrontation in courts. But it feels like the next few years, we will still see a growing number of litigation, particularly as we see both some governments not being consistent with the legislation that they passed and corporations also not being consistent either with what they promised or not committing to, for instance, reducing emissions. So until we start seeing not more only more promises, but more delivery in action, I'm afraid we are going to continue to see an increase in litigation. 
And in terms of those trends and looking at those cases, are there certain sectors where you're seeing having more cases than others? Yes, we can look at litigation by sectors and also, well, more broadly against what are the plaintiffs and defendants that are involved. So what's interesting is that the majority of cases so far has been brought against governments, and this is both national and subnational. Typically, those bringing the cases are either companies or NGOs or individuals. So in our last report, we saw that more than 70% of all cases were brought against governments. And 70% also had been filed by NGOs, individuals or both together. In terms of sectors, what we have observed looking at the private sector is that the majority of litigation against corporates has been against the carbon majors. So those companies that are involved in the extraction of fossil fuels or provision of fossil fuel energy. So that makes sense because both the cases against governments, if you think that governments are the ones who are going to legislate or enforce legislation and against the major emitters as they have been historically contributing most to the problem. However, we see, especially in the last year, that there is a growing in sectors against litigation is being brought. So we see a more diverse range of corporate actors involved in litigation. And in the last year, we saw, for example, that while around half of the cases had been brought against fossil fuel companies, a bit more than half actually were of the cases were brought against defendants in other sectors, particularly the food and agriculture, transport, plastics and finance. You listed off a few areas there, so transportation, food, plastics. Are there particular areas in the future, you know, not asking you to look into tea leaves too much, but are there particular areas that you think are going to be increasingly vulnerable to this kind of litigation who mightn't have been as much in people's target before? Well, an area that I didn't mention, but I imagine it's of interest in this podcast, is the area of construction. Because construction is involved in this problem in different points. So there is a relevance of looking into the construction sector at the stages of planning in terms of how the business, this sector is considering not only how it might contribute to the problem in, for example, having more or less efficient buildings, but also how it's going to suffer with the impacts of climate change. So on the adaptation side. And then also there is a whole issue around the supply chains that are part of the construction business. So I don't know if we want already to go into that sector, but I think that the construction sector is one that hasn't been looked very closely so far, but that can both experience the impacts of climate change and contribute to the problem and the solution in an important way that I would say it will be increasingly also object of attention in the litigation. I was about to ask you a question about strategic litigation and the motivation behind it. And in terms of specifically with construction, can you think of what motivation there might be or driving factors behind any strategic litigation that might be brought in relation to the construction sector? Before addressing specifically this question, I think it's important to understand what we mean by strategic litigation. So what we observe in this area is that increasingly litigation is being brought in a strategic way. What do we mean by that? That we're not looking at a case where there has been, you know, the classic example, one neighbor and another neighbor 
having a dispute over a fence, a tree. It's not about a specific problem between two people who are directly being affected. A lot of the climate litigation that has been brought in the previous years has motives that go beyond the concerns of the individual litigants. And what this litigation is aiming at is aiming at advancing climate policies. It's aiming at creating public awareness or really even changing the behavior of governments or industry actors. So this litigation doesn't end with a filing and ruling. What is most important in this litigation is the media, the awareness raising activities, who knows about this, who the case is representing. And therefore, it goes much beyond the filing and the ruling. And this is where, if you think about the construction sector, the way I would see strategic litigation playing a role is, again, to raise awareness about those issues that we were talking about, how the construction sector is important, both in terms of mitigating climate change, adapting to climate change, and how the construction sector has a role in supply chains that also then involve the transport sector. So what the strategic litigation does, it it embodies a narrative of something that society, that actors in society that are concerned about climate change are trying to say for a long time as a message. you You have the studies, you have the science, a lot is already there, but that narrative hasn't been effectively communicated or could be communicated in a stronger, more efficient way through litigation. And this is where strategic litigation will think carefully about who is bringing the case against who and where and maximize the impact of that one lawsuit. So that one lawsuit communicates more broadly the narrative that you want to convene through that case. So looking specifically at what you've said there about strategic litigation, but litigation more generally, are there any trends or the start of trends that we're already seeing specifically related to the construction sector in terms of the review of the case law that you've done? So we have trying to look at different sectors and I would, on top of the reports that we publish, I would also like to refer to a very recent report that was published by a law firm, global law firm, DLA Piper. And they break down the analysis of climate litigation according to different sectors, the construction sector being one of those. So the reason I mentioned this is that you can look at the body of climate change litigation from many different lenses. So you can look from for example, the point of view of who's bringing the case against who and if you have the more aligned or non-aligned or what the strategies or what are the legal theories behind the cases. But you can also break it down into sectors. And if we try to do that and you look particularly at the construction sector, I would say, again, based on this report by DLA Piper, that there are three areas, three ways in which climate litigation related to the construction sector typically arises. So the first is the challenges to planning and procurement phases of a project. So the very early stages of a project. The second is the damage, the potential pollution that will result from the construction and the ongoing operation of the project. And the third relates to private disputes between commercial entities arising from the failure by a party to comply with the relevant environmental obligations and design standards 
or for instance, where a project is no longer economically or politically viable. So these three ways in which litigation can affect the construction sector. The first, I would say it looks to ensure the sustainability of the project. So in doing that, it tries to disencourage developments that might have damaging impact to the climate and to the environment. And the second and the third, they might lead to a disruption or even the termination of a project if that's considered particularly damaging. So I think with that, you kind of tend to cover the different phases and the litigation will be different depending on the phase that is being brought and with the aim that it has. So there are three, I think, very clear strands for construction that apply very specifically. In terms of the general trends you're seeing in the case law you're looking at, are there any points that you think of general application that are really going to start impacting construction clients, even if they're not specifically construction related? When we did our last Global Trends report, we tried to look at the latest cases of climate litigation, exactly trying to understand what is the case seeking to achieve? Is it seeking to advance climate policies or is it seeking to maybe stop or challenge climate policies? So that's the first distinction we do because the cases can be aligned and they can be not aligned with climate objectives. So I think that's something to keep in mind. What is the driver for that case? And in looking at the aligned cases, the majority of cases so far have really been seeking to enforce climate standards. What do we mean by that? Well, these are cases that can be filed both against governments or companies, for example, against the construction sector. You can imagine this kind of case where the, what is being challenged is this a policy or a decision around an action or a permit to an individual project. So you can challenge there a permit given to the construction of a new hotel by the sea that is not considering the impacts of climate change or the construction of a new industry that has that emits more than what the best technology would permit that company to emit. So all of these cases that seek to enforce climate standards are likely to continue and affect the construction sector and others. But we have also some really interesting cases that might have a more indirect impact. And we call these framework cases against governments. So the case that is most well known as an example of a framework case is the Urgenda case in the Netherlands. But that case and many other cases that have been filed since, and we know of almost 80 cases now around the world that have this framework aspect, they challenge the overall ambition of government's response to climate change or the adequacy of the implementation of a certain policy, a certain law. What's important there is that by challenging this overall policy of a government, you can get, for example, governments to be determined to have more stringent emission targets, to address sectors of the economy that otherwise wouldn't have been addressed, to have some more stringent mechanism to monitor reductions in different sectors. And this is where I say it's a case against the government that can indirectly affect several sectors of the economy, including the construction sector. If you uh, part of that lawsuit, for instance, is trying to regulate planning and construction, which is likely an area that will be addressed. So even though it's against the government, it will have impacts in corporates. 
And we can see then in terms of the cases still that are aligned, another type of case that is of relevance, which is the, the cases that we called climate washing or greenwashing cases, which are a very likely case to be filed because it's an easier case to demonstrate when you have, for instance, buildings saying that the building is a, a net zero building or any net zero announcements really that cannot prove to be achieving that level of reductions. Uh, all, all of these types of announcements, advertisement, communication that is considered misleading is potentially going to be subject of some scrutiny and potentially to litigation. So greenwashing, the last one I mentioned, the cases against governments that have that broad scope and direct cases against corporates for seeking the enforcement of climate standards. At the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that you'd like to see more action and less litigation. And for this, I suppose our construction sector clients need motivation and agreement. How can their legal advisors listening to this help their construction sector clients be more collaborative? Well, I will answer this question remembering actually what I used to be many years ago. I was a lawyer in a large corporate law firm. And at the time, and it was not in this country, it was in Brazil and many years ago, there was a tendency to say that, you know, we are going to defend you client, whatever is being brought against you. And these NGOs and individuals, they are just creating noise. They are annoying your business, but don't worry, we can handle them. What they say is not so important as what you're trying to do, producing oil or energy and so on. So that type of discourse, I think that's wrong. That's the past. And it's not really helpful in this time where the science is clear and society has moved also to understand that protecting the climate, protecting the planet is a priority. So I think that's the first, like overall, this is the message that I I would say is that you have as a lawyer, as someone who's providing legal advice to a client is to really be clear that everyone at this point should be doing their best and that there is a risk, an increasing risk of society challenging if a company is not or a state is not doing that. So how do you do that? I would say the first way that legal advisors can help is by learning themselves what is happening. So learn about the legislation, learn about the science, learn about the litigation. Once the legal advisor, the lawyer is well informed, this individual is prepared to then help educating and sharing that knowledge with the client. So educating yourself, informing yourself, and then informing and educating your client, I think are the most important first steps. Once that's done, then of course, you have to break it down into individual types of actions, individual types of risks. So for example, what is your net zero strategy looking like? What it should look like? What is the responsibility of directors and you know, how to reduce the risk of directors being implicated in litigation? What is greenwashing? What type of communication the company is doing and what it should avoid? And very importantly too, what type of due diligence the company is carrying within its supply chain. So understand its responsibility and duty of care up and down the supply chain that the company is part of. 
That's really helpful. And it more or less answers my next question, which is really looking towards our responsibility as lawyers. And how do you see that we can have better loyally engagement on this topic with our clients? One very helpful way to think about this is what Justice Preston, who is a judge from Australia in the Environmental Court, Planning Court in Australia, has written about. And he talks about the climate conscious lawyer. So I would answer this question saying that there is a way to think about all the areas of law with a climate component in your thinking. And once you have that climate conscious lawyer, you have really a lawyer that is ready to understand that climate is part of all the areas of law, really. So in tax law, in planning law, in human rights law, in commercial law. So all areas of law, you can include a climate angle, understand what the matter that you're dealing with can both affect negatively or how you can also affect positively this issue. And that might require the lawyer to think outside the strict areas of law. So yes, you are stretching a bit what lawyers are being asked in terms that lawyers have to understand policy and a bit of science perhaps, but that there is a way in each area of law to include the climate lens and be a climate conscious lawyer that can contribute in different areas of law to addressing this problem. So in terms of that, you said at the beginning that you don't think litigation is the way to deal with this. And yourself, having started off as a lawyer and myself and Camilla, you'd think we wouldn't agree with that. But I entirely agree, of course, because litigation is reactive, really, rather than proactive. There's only so much you can really solve with a piece of litigation. Bearing that in mind, do you have any top tips for clients who are seeking to protect the natural world, but they're also trying to avoid litigation at the same time? I think some of those ways I've already mentioned in terms of the lawyers understanding the landscape that is the landscape of today. So again, the changes in legislation, the trends in litigation, so informing themselves. But I think there is something that can be added to that answer, which is the communication with stakeholders. A significant part of addressing climate change is that it's not a problem that can be solved by anyone individually. It has to be addressed by the whole of society. Some actors have more responsibility and can do more, but the fact is that you can only change if everyone is on board. So communicating is a crucial aspect of what needs to be done. Having people on board is a crucial aspect. So I would add that the different policies, decisions that different companies and sectors are taking, those should be made in conversation with sectors of society. So for example, there are several NGOs who have been very active in this field. Can you understand what they are asking for? So understand what the NGOs and the more stringent and progressive type of legislation is asking and speak to that is a good start. So that you can do by reading what the different asks are, but then you can also do that by sitting with the different stakeholders. So having conversations with NGOs who work in this field and understanding what smaller or not so small changes to what 
your plans work and be made? What are their needs? What are they seeking for? So establishing channels for communication, I would say, is a very helpful way to avoid litigation. We've been seeing, for instance, in the citizens' assemblies that have been taking place in several countries, how citizens are able also to learn about what the problem is, come up with solutions. And especially in the construction sector, which is a sector that is very close to people because people use buildings, they see buildings being built. It's a very tangible area. This is an area where citizens' assemblies and conversations around these citizens' assemblies can provide, I would say, a lot of useful information to the sector to understand how to avoid conflict, how to minimize the chances that they would be litigated against. And every avoided litigation, I would say, should be considered as a win already. Thank you so much, Joanna. There are no more questions from me. And it feels just to thank you for your time this morning and for contributing to such an interesting podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. And I'm glad that lawyers that work in this sector have been paying attention at climate litigation and adding that layer to the work that you already do. And hopefully this is useful and I'm happy to continue having the conversation. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.